You have now tapped in with the introspective father and son duo. Last name may be strange, but never strangers to the game. Adjust the listening devices and keep it live. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ay, coming in, yeah. Flex, I just wanna win, yeah. LABB, who we running with, yeah. 2233, Hello and welcome to another installment of No Strangers to the Game. Today's episode is entitled, Why We Wear the Mask. Today we're going to be discussing uh, code switching and, you know, people of color in this country adapting to, you know, the dominant culture in the workplace and in general public. Um, how blacks or, you know, other people of color feel the need to change the way they look, dress or, or speak, um, you know, when they're surrounded by a different you know, race. Um, so for that today, I wanted to start off with asking you, I guess, specifically in the workplace, but also in general, how have you felt either the need to code switch or just how do you view code switching and, you know, adapting in that way in general? Well, as uh, W.E.B. Du Bois stated in the early 1900s, that to be black living in America, you live in a state of uh, double consciousness. That means you're adapting and trying to fit into the dominant culture. And at the same time, you're trying to be authentic to who you are and um, to your culture. And so that's something that has been prevalent in our community for, for years. And um, it's just one of those things that you grow up doing. And a lot of times you don't even realize it. For me, the first time I actually realized that I was doing that is when I you know, went to college and I got the chance to take uh, Pan-African Studies classes. And it kind of laid out for me, you know, the things that were happening, the discussions that we were having, and how I would adapt from, you know, being a, a part of the dominant culture and how I talked, how I interacted with people, and then going back to my neighborhood, to the Black culture, and how we interact with one another. So it's something that has, you know, I've been doing my whole life, um, but I've not about 30 years ago, I realized what was actually happening and, and what we would call code switching. Yeah, it's funny because I, I noticed I noticed it very early on, actually, in terms of code switching and just how, you know, you had to adjust to fit into the dominant culture. I think I noticed it with you, actually. Uh, as you said, I was a really observant. You always say I'm an, I was an observant kid and I noticed a lot of things. I think it was always funny because you, when we had family over or your friends would have you, you dressed different, you talked a lot different versus when, let's say I wanted to go to a meeting with you and you know wanted to go to work with you, right? You dressed way different, talked a lot different. And I, I think it was tough to differentiate between, okay, he's just gotta be more professional in this place as opposed to like, this is a, this is a totally different, you know what I mean? Way to even speak and act and feel. It had a totally different feel to it. And so that's, I noticed that very early on as well as with my grandma, in terms of code switching, she she uh, <laughs> she's from Texas, so she has a really you know an accent, and, and so you always hear when I was a kid, I heard her talk on the phone to her friends. She's talking real fast, nah, 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 going on and on and on, and then you know she'd be like, "Hold on, I'm getting another call," and she'd get another call, and hello, I and it just completely switched her voice and, and mannerism and demeanor with the way she spoke. So that's something I noticed early on. I just couldn't put a label on it. Um, but talk about it specifically in jobs that you've worked on. Did you feel the need to, I guess, dress and act a certain way because, and did it feel like, okay, I'm doing this because this is just work culture or because you're trying to assimilate into 
another type of culture? What differentiates some of those, you know, aspects? Well, it, it was, uh, most of it was professional in terms of how you dress. The jobs that I've had have required mostly to dress up with a shirt and tie, sometimes a suit. So um, the dress was one of those things that were required, but not just for me, but for everyone. Um, and as far as being able to um, talk, the way that I talked, you know, at home or in, in, in the workplace, it was different because the conversations were more professional and the topics and discussions were about work. And so things that I would talk about on my job, I wouldn't necessarily talk about at home. And so it allowed me or required me to adapt to that situation and use the appropriate terminology, the appropriate language so that I could uh, effectively communicate um, in the work environment. At home, obviously it was a lot more loose. And, you know, we talked about various things that didn't really lead to job terminology and the workplace. And so those were the distinctions as far as, you know, why I talked or dressed the way I did. Also, I dressed that way and I did some experiments when I was uh, in the workplace. I would see how when I was off work and people that I knew and I dressed in maybe a hat and some t-shirts and jeans or sweats. And then when I put on a suit and a tie, people responded to me totally differently. And I always kind of played around with that and tried to use it to my advantage so that I'd be able to access the things that I needed and people would respond to me the way I needed to respond to me in that professional environment. Not saying I necessarily liked it or agreed with it, but I understood that um, I needed to you know, function accordingly to get the responses that I was looking for. Yeah, I understand. I mean, and as I've gone through and had, you know, a few internships and some professional, I guess, experiences, I've, I've felt the need to at least dress a certain way and act a certain way. Um, obviously the conversations in the workplace are a lot different than the ones you would have at home. But what do you feel about just the way, I think, Anybody who's been around, you know, black culture a lot understands that we speak a lot differently when we're around our friends and other people who look and, you know, act like us, as opposed to when we go to work. Whereas, you know, when I hang around some of my white friends or what have you, their parents come home and they, you know, seems like, and to me, they, they talk the same way they do at home, at least just from a, I don't know, phonic standpoint, everything kind of sounds the same as when they go to work. Whereas with the black folks, everything switches. <laughs> Well, I think a lot of that goes back to probably slavery. Yeah. Um, there was times when, you know, there would be conversations that would be happening and you'd have both the slave master and then the enslaved that would be there and the conversation would be going and you would get two different interpretations of what was being said and what was being communicated. Yeah. For example, like like you'd have the, the slave master and they explain, say, for instance, the songs, like they'd be in the fields and they'd be singing. They'd talk about steal away Jesus and all these different spirituals. When the slave master and the untrained ear, it sounded like they were just singing spirituals. But right. to those that are out in the field, that often and sometimes meant that, hey, we was looking to get up out of here. <laughs> so tonight at this time, this song means that we get up out of here. And so often you have that even with hip hop culture where it's becoming more mainstream. It has become more mainstream, but the dialect, the terminology, the words and the conversation was totally different. And in fact, they created a hip hop dictionary and 
we understood what was being said and we didn't even have to be from say that part of the country to sure. understand what was being said if we understood it in the context that it was being placed in. And so that's something I think that just over the years for survival, we learned how to code switch, learn how to have these conversations to relay one thing to the dominant culture and then at the same time, relay a whole ton of message to the culture and the people that we were around. Yeah, I think that's an interesting dynamic when you bring up, you know, you know, I guess the, the transition from slaves, slaves, you know, different speech and the things that they did for the reasons they did. Um, and then to now what they kind of teach in school is that realistically what I'm, what I'm talking about is Ebonics, right? It seems like a lot of times we're, we're taught that Ebonics is the less educated, you know, type of speech. And that it stems from the fact that, hey, slaves couldn't read and write, so they spoke this way. And that's why you get some of that carryover now. That's to see like, that's what I was taught in school. And it's sometimes, I mean, I guess it comes from a little bit of truth because slaves weren't allowed to read and write. And so maybe their speech changed in that way, but it also feels like it really downplays, you know, at least my history to where like, hey, your ancestors were just too dumb to talk. That's why you talk, you and your family communicate the way you do. And that seems to be kind of the message that's taken from it and it just doesn't feel really fair. Well, I think it's a combination of things. I think, um, as I think back, I took a linguistics class in college. It was a um, linguistics on African dialect. And what I learned in there is that the sentence structures and all those things and the patterns of speech in which we still to today, many of us carry out, came from you know um, our deep rooted in African dialect in certain parts of the uh, continent in which we came from, right? Um, and that was carried over. Some of it has to do with just not being able to read, not understanding, you know, some of those um, terms. And so a lot of times when you hear us talk, there's certain words in which we will not pronounce the TH at the end of a word. And so those, those are things that, from what I understand, were carried over from some of the African dialect. And some of it is just, you know, part of putting words and sentences together, you know, with what we had. So kind of like with people learning different languages, they kind of put together like they call Spanglish. So yeah. part of it is speaking English, part of it is Spanish. And so they're infusing those two dialects or languages and it becomes something a little different. Um, and you think about in Jamaica, when the, the dialect is largely the same, but the way that it's pronounced and the way that it's stated, sometimes it's difficult if you're not trained and not accustomed to hearing it, you're not under, able to understand it. But they're still, for the most part, speaking you know, a similar dialect, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got, in the Jamaican culture, real quick, you've got Patois, which is basically its own, it's its, its own dialect, but there's really words that you, you won't understand if you've never heard it or you don't, you're not around it very much. Um, and then you have just a Jamaican accent where they're speaking English. It just sounds a lot different because, you know, the way they, they, way they speak. But um, it's in pop culture, I guess, and things like today, they're there's a big push to make Ebonics an official language. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you feel that that's something that is necessary? Because I don't believe that Spanglish is an, is an official language. Do you feel it's necessary to make Ebonics an official language or is that, what, what are your thoughts on it in I, general? I don't think it's necessary to make it official language personally. I think it's good to be able to recognize the differences in how we speak and why to add, at least acknowledge it. Um, because like you stay, stated earlier, that you felt it's unfair to 
you know, label how, you know, our culture speaks at times and often um, as a uneducated form of speaking. Yeah. And so I think it's good to acknowledge that, hey, these are the dialects and these are the things that um, came out of various situations that are here now. But for me anyway, I don't know if I think it's necessary to call it a separate language. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. I, I personally don't think that that really does much. I just think that, like I said, I think the way it, it's taught has to be changed because it's it's unfair for you know a young black student to be sitting in class and be told that, hey, your ancestors and the way they spoke, really just, it just seems like it purely stems from them being uneducated, not being able to read and write. And so now you walk home or you go home and that's kind of the, the the dialect being spoken in your household or at least some you know traces of it are in the dialects being spoken in your household and what are you supposed to believe about that and the bias that creates within you but only not only then you have other kids you know of other races in your class and as they grow up they they believe the same thing hey that speech that you're you know that speech that you have or that speech that your family has that comes from this and so realistically you know, that creates bias as they grow up, they become employers. And as they, you know, you're interviewing an employee, you're looking at them differently because of what you were taught at such a young age. And so that's the thing, the thing that has to change and not necessarily becoming an official language, but um, yeah. Well, to kind of end, um, you know, as far as that goes, the English language itself is a collection of various dialects and languages. Um, so, that's one of the things that just a combination of different languages and dialects. So, um, you know, that's my thoughts on that. The, I want to switch gears to, we, we talk, we've been talking about Ebonics. I want to talk more so about, you know, the look, because there definitely is, I guess, uh, in our country, a bias towards, a, I would say, a cultured look, or in our case, a black look. So I went to high school at a Jesuit Catholic high school um, where they had a strict dress code and, you know, wanted, you know, things to be, I guess, clean cut. And so they had for, for guys anyway, the hair, the hair requirements were, hey, hair can't go over the ears and it has to be a natural look. That, that's direct quote. Cannot go hang over the ears. It has to be a natural look. So I guess I don't know if it was defiance or I don't know, but I decided, OK, I'm going to grow my hair out because as long as my hair grows, as long as I can get it to grow, it doesn't go over my ears. That's not how our hair grows, right? It's obviously a much different look than I guess you could say what who that rule was written for. Um, and so I grew my hair out super long. It kind of got into a fro. I kind of curled it and twisted it to be all kind of, I guess, wild looking or at least natural looking for our culture. Um, and I was in compliance with the rule. I want to get your opinion on, I guess, my motives and also your general thoughts on me growing my hair out, you know, and, and I guess getting around that rule. Well, first, I mean, I would say I like the hair, hairstyle. I thought it was a, a, a nice look. It was it was a wild look, but it was still a neat, you know, it was something that looked like, hey, I didn't try, but, you know, it's still a neat look. I think your whole thing was partly just lazy. The other part was just being defiant because you said, probably looked at and say, well, let me see what I can, let me see how I can take this rule and use it. Stay within the guidelines, within the box, 
but stretch it out a little. Um, For whatever reason, you just have this way of defying things in a manner that's not disrespectful, that's not, you know, um, in your face or rude. It's just, I'm gonna defy it because I want to or because I can. And I'm gonna do it in a way that there's really nothing you can say about it. Yeah. Um, There's been many times I noticed that as a kid where you would just do things and it was like, it would piss me off. (laughs) I would be agitated, but you know, I couldn't find a real rationale for punishing you for that action because you knew just where to draw that line to where I can do enough to be defiant without getting myself in trouble. So I thought it was funny when you did that as far as your hair and growing it out at the school. And one I, um, go ahead. And I think it's it, one one point that I wanted to get to is I know for me going to high school that was my first time being around I guess uh, you know white kids in that amount for that long. And so what I saw was you know growing up as a black kid you know you get your hair cut at least once a month if not you know more often than that. You get in lineups you're trying to get it faded so it looks I guess neater or what have you. Um, and I saw them and these kids don't get haircuts for, you know, one, two months at a time. Their hair's just growing. They don't have lineups. They're not getting, you know, they may get a haircut every once in a while just to make sure it doesn't get too, too long. But other than that, it's not a big deal. They wake up in the morning, they flip it over on one side and they walk out the door. And so I started to think, you know, why is my culture, we, if we feel like we need to get up, you know, at least every two weeks or so, we need, first of all, every morning we're brushing it, trying to get waves or make sure it doesn't look our natural state. Uh, we're fading it. We're doing all these things to try to make it look, I guess, more clean. And it's not necessarily our natural look. I'm like, why are we doing these things? So I was just, I guess, kind of a social experiment to see, first of all, what would my hair look like when I did that? But two, just if I took the same action steps they did every morning with their hair and I did it with mine, how would the results be, I guess, perceived by, first of all, my culture? Because I got a lot of comments about it and things from even just my people. But also, you know, with, you know, my school and how, the, you know, the rules there were set up, how would it be perceived in that way? So I think that was another big thing for me was just kind of to, to, I guess, see things from that view. But you're right. I also was pretty lazy and didn't like combing my hair and stuff like that. So, <laughs> yeah, and I think it probably that part of that defiance has always been a part of our culture because we were always we've always since, you know, um, over the last 400 years, fighting for that identity, fighting for independence in ways that we could. And um, I think that just carried on naturally throughout history for us. And I think one of the prevalent um, examples of that is hip hop. You know, music has always been that for our culture where it was speaking um, in double tongues, you know, saying one thing, but it meant something totally different depending on who the listener was. And so uh, when hip hop came along, I think it really boldly stated defiance. I mean, here you create a culture, you create a whole art form of music with no instruments. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. The graffiti, the dress, and how we acted and how we um, moved was something that was of defiance, stating that we hear, I'm bold, and deal with it. Yeah. And so I think that's something that has carried on and is carried on today, uh, particularly with your generation and even with my generation, because I was... I was born and was around when the first recorded rap song um, came out in 1978, 79, Rapper's Delight. I mean, there was songs before that, but that was the first one that was actually recorded and promoted to be sold. So um, 
Yeah, so defiance is part of the culture to really create that space and to say, hey, I'm independent and this is who I am, notice me. I look at it and say that it didn't, that, that, I think that it's tough because obviously when hip hop came out, it was showing black culture in a light that I don't think white folks ever saw because every time we went around them, we code switched. We, we changed who we were and we started to act a lot different. But what I do think it did too was in that time, at least I wasn't alive, so I can't speak to what I saw, but looking back through you know history and just kind of what you see from that time, it looks like it created almost some division. And what I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that there were people who viewed it and said, hey man, this is dope. Like I, I love black culture and people who wanted to emulate it. And then I think there was an obviously a different demographic that said, that's not right. You know what I mean? That's not civilized or whatever it is. What I think helped bridge the gap and bring the two worlds together was when you started to see, I guess, rap artists or athletes or all of these people, you know, who were embracing black culture make real money and start to become a part of corporate America. J. Cole talks about it briefly. He says, you know, he went into interviews with a bunch of record labels and he knew his interview was probably going to be with some, you know, big wig and some, some white guys, right? So he did things, he cut his hair, he wanted to make sure himself looked clean a little bit. And this is a rapper, so imagine, you know, a different job. But he says that when he went into his uh, interview with Jay, uh, Jay-Z, because Jay-Z was the executive at Rockefeller Records, and he said, Jay-Z will understand, you know what I mean? He'll get it, you know what I mean? This is me coming to the table with another black man. I don't need to do my hair. I don't need to dress up, you know, at least to that degree because he'll understand it. So I think when you see rappers or athletes or just blacks in general, at least to ascend to a level of, I guess, some type of power, you look at it and you say, if I'm sitting across the table from somebody who will understand me, I don't need to go out of my way to change, you know, the way I act, look or dress or do anything like that out of the ordinary to make them feel, I guess, comfortable because that's what it comes down to is we code switch and we do these things because like I said, I think there was, there's still that divide of people who look at real black culture and say that's somewhat uncivilized in a way. And maybe it's subconscious, but I think there is that thought at least for some. Yeah, um, I think there's some truth to that in terms of looking at um, the example you gave with J. Cole meeting with Jay-Z versus meeting with you know corporate um, directors and heads of uh, major corporations um, that were white or non-black. And so that's the code switching. That's the part where you go in and you figure out what environment am I going in and how do I need to prepare myself to go into that environment? And so it's, a, it's just part of the instincts. It's part of survival. And we have to do that in everything we do. You know, you don't go to the swimming pool or to the beach with a three-piece suit on. You know, each environment, each situation sometimes call for a different um, response or a different approach. And so let's not make, let's make sure we don't get mixed up with, you know, code switching from a cultural standpoint, then, you know, adapting to situations because it fits the environment that we're going into because that's the smart thing to do. Um, so um, I get that point and I think something that we do often and it's yeah. just something that's going to be around. I do see that there's more people in general across the globe who have taken on the hip hop culture, the rap culture, in which the way they dress, the way they talk, the way they walk. Um, and I see, and, and I often sometimes when I'm looking and scrolling through social media, where you have different groups that are not black, 
using the N-word, you yeah. know, and, and talking to each other. And so we have, and that culture has permeated the world and mainstream culture to the point to where sometimes it's hard to distinguish between who's who. If you turn the lights out and just start listening to people talk, you probably wouldn't know who that was. You couldn't distinguish if this is a white person, black person, Asian, um, Latinx, or whomever. Yeah. So um, it's definitely well, it goes, the It goes back to what I was saying is there was like a divide. You get, you had, I think a large, when, when hip hop became global and you started to see black culture in mainstream media, I think you had those, like I said, that looked at it and said, man, that's uncivilized. It's unsettling really for them. And then those who said, man, this is dope. I really, I really want to emulate it. And so we've gotten those two different responses for people in mainstream media today. You have so many people that want to look, act, dress, talk, all of these things as blacks do. Um, and then those who really kind of despise it. So I think it's created that divide. And that's what you're talking about, where you see a lot of people really trying to emulate it. Yeah. And, you know, I even seen that uh, in the gang culture. I remember coming up where you could distinctly identify who was a gang member just by how they dressed. And now you can go out and you see people and you don't know if this just doing the gang or not, because most young people of a certain age dress very much alike. You know, yeah. there's not too many distinctions. I remember coming up, you had the preppy, then you had the gangsters, then you just had people who just wore what they had. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? So there was a big distinction on how people dress. Now, I don't see that distinction as much when you go out and just in everyday life, um, regardless of, you know, the people's background and culture. I remember that because when we used, we used to go to LA all the time. We have family in LA. We used to live in LA. So we spent a lot of time in LA. And every time we went, I had, you know, blue shoes, red shoes, stuff like that. And you would always be like, don't wear that blue t-shirt or don't wear that red t-shirt. And I was like, I, as I got older, I knew where it came from, right? A lot of gang culture in LA that I didn't necessarily get growing up and where I did. But I was, I also understood to a degree that, you know, that, that things had changed, you know what I mean? From when you were, I guess, living out there in LA. I knew that things were kind of different where you, you could wear blue and you weren't automatically a crip, you know what I mean? Or things like that. There were certain type of ties you had to make or certain type of, you know, articles you had to wear to really make that association. And could the, could there be that mistake? Yes. But I definitely think it, it was a little different from when you were coming up. And so that was something that we, I remember we used to go back and forth on. <laughs> um, staying, I kind of wanted to get back to hairstyles because you said that, you know, you don't, you don't want to get it confused. There obviously is a difference between you know, the way you dress when you're comfortable at home with your family, around friends, and the way you, you know, for all cultures, the way you dress when you need to go and be professional. And I completely understand that. I think the biggest distinction for me in terms of code switching that I see is not, it, does, it affects black men. And I think I've obviously been through it as we talked about my experience, but mainly black women and their hair. I want to get back to the hair because when we talk about those natural looks or cleaning it up, I think I have two sisters and I remember my older sister every morning getting up and, and flat ironing her hair to make it look straight. And I always wondered where that came from. And as I got older, I realized, I mean, that was, that was probably what was more socially acceptable opposed to putting, you know, I love when Malia, our, 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 my little sister, who's really younger, she, she puts her hair in a big puff or two, you know, big puff balls and just kind of lets it be natural, her natural hair, but she hates it. And so obviously we never taught her that at home. We always tell her we love the way that looks. Where is she getting that from? And so I, that's, an, that's an interesting point for me in terms of the hair for black women, especially. So dive yeah, and into speaking that on, uh, on your sister, it's what she sees. 
And a lot of times it's subtle. So with, me, with media and what you see on the TV, most of the women on TV that she watches, the girls, the women, the hair is typically straight. They're starting to be more images that show women of color or black women in their, with their hair in its natural state. Um, but oftentimes that's not the case. Also, you know, she's growing up in an area where she's one of very few black children um, where she lives, the school she goes to. So I think she may be looking around her and seeing that, you know, my hair is much different than everybody else's. And she hasn't really truly learned to appreciate that. She may get instances where people want to touch it and people may look at it and, you know, may respond differently. So I think there may be various reasons as to why, but the big, the main point is that I don't believe she sees enough people with their hair like that to where she can say, I, I like that and I appreciate it. Yeah. With that, they've kind of created this new uh, piece of legislation called the Crown Act which basically states that any type of hair color or any type of hairstyle or uh, especially, you know, as it pertains to race and a certain type of racist hair, you know, natural hairstyle and the hairstyles that they predominantly wear has to be accepted in the workplace and can't be discriminated against because we've seen in past where people wouldn't get jobs or they would be told to change their hair because it didn't look a certain way. Um, and so that I think I want to get your input on that um, piece of legislation. I think for me, really quickly, it has good and bad. I think it's annoying that something has to be signed into legislation for us to not be discriminated against. That It feels kind of annoying, but at least I think what the law does do is allow you to where when it does happen, you can take some legal action. And we both know that that's where the change is really going to come from, where people start to be like, okay, this is going to hurt me if I do, if I react this way, if I treat people this way because of this because they can take legal action now. So what are your thoughts on that as a whole? Is it something that's necessary? Do you view as good or just kind of? I see it as, first of all, it lets us know that we're still not considered citizens of this country. Yeah. If we had to enact laws for us to just function in our natural way, that means that, you know, to me, we're still not accepted and viewed as, uh, you know, citizens of the, of the United States of America. We see that also in um, with the voting rights, right? Yeah. Every 25 years, we have to vote to make sure that we are allowed to vote, you know, in elections. So there is something in deeply rooted in the Constitution. I know it says one thing, but how it's carried out and enforced says something totally different. There shouldn't have to be amendments because it says all men are created equal. That's it. Yeah. So we yeah. shouldn't have to say... Well, we got to add a 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. It's just like all men, we're meaning. And so until we change that whole perspective as to we're even considered citizens of this country, we're going to continue to enact these laws. I'm glad that the law has been put in place. And it's not in every state, if I'm not mistaken. No, it's not. So um, you still have states that, you know, that doesn't even count. <laughs> but like you said, also, it's a part that feels like uh, I agree I, I'm happy that you're making this effort but yeah. I'm you know just appalled that we even have to do this it's yeah. just disgusting and <laughs> disheartening that I have yeah. to vote somebody has to vote for me to wear my hair in its natural state so yeah. um so that's my response on that I want to end with two questions for you 
because they really pertain to you. I, I have no experience with them. <laughs> the first one is now that you're kind of higher up, you know, within your company and, and, a, and a part of corporate America, do you still feel any pressure or any bias, you know, against, I guess, you know, black culture within your company specifically or in the corporate world in general? I don't, we don't want to get nobody in trouble in here. But two, um, I'll get into the second one after actually. Answer, answer that one first. Yeah, um, to answer your question, the, the, the organization I work for here in the desert, and I'm not gonna name it, um, but it's probably one that has probably more African-American black people in higher level positions than places that I've worked throughout the Valley over the last 16, 17 years that I've been here. Yeah. Um, however, there's still a lot to, to, to be learned as far as culturally and in the position that I am, that I, I get a chance to hire people, uh, I'm a director and um, I'm allowed to, you know, bring in people that I think are going to uh, benefit the organization. I feel a sense of pressure to bring on the right people, particularly if they're black. And I don't necessarily go out just looking for black people to hire, but yeah. if they are hired and they are candidates, you know, I, I feel that if I do hire them, that um, they have to come to the table and they have to be on point. And yeah. the reason I say that is because there's so few of us out here and in the jobs that I've had, there's so been so few in those positions and places that I feel that we have to make sure that we leave the doors open behind us so that, you know, that experience is a good experience for these organizations so that they would be willing to hire, you know, more blacks in some of these positions. Um, that's one of the things. I feel it's important that I have to represent us well. And, and, and it's sad on, on, on an occasion that I feel I have to represent a community yeah. or a culture, but that's where we're at. Uh, yeah. So um, I take on that and I take it very serious that I represent well and the people that I bring in represent as well also. And, yeah, and it goes back to what you always taught me growing up was, hey, the unfortunate reality of the world we live in is that because of the color of your skin, you're going to have to be twice as good as the person next to you who doesn't have the same color skin, you know, and it's unfortunate, but Hey, that's the world we live in. So <laughs> do what you got to do. Yeah. Um, and that's and, and why we really need to begin to develop and create businesses in which we control. Yeah. And that way we hire and we can set the tone on what we want our businesses and companies to look like, to run like. And so that's an area that we have to really improve in as well. Yeah. So piggybacking with off, off of what I was just saying with, you know, the way you were, you, way you taught me and my sisters growing up, speak just, a, just real quick about raising, you know, you've raised a black, a young black female and a young black male in today's world, you're raising another young black female at the time. So talk about the, I guess the delicate balance between telling your child, Hey, the world may not accept some of the things in the way you are because of the color of your skin. You know, that's an unfortunate reality. Talk about the delicate balance of like, hey, stay who you are. Be proud of your culture. Be proud to be black. Be proud to, you know, wear your hair in your natural state. All of these things. But also, like we talked about, being able to at least function and be able to, I guess, be a part of our society and, and, and gain some level of success. How do you teach that balance? Well, I always try to teach. I always taught you guys to be authentic to who you are. Knowing 
my grandmother, your great grandmother, Mama, knowing my mom, your grandmother, Joyce, or Nan, as you call her, yeah. knowing Granny Josie and the people that I grew up around, you know, when you see the, when you saw these people, when you see them, you get exactly what they are. You know, there's no real false pretenses or someone being something different than who they are. For the most part, what you see is what you get. And so I grew up in that environment where I always was comfortable being who I am. Um, I also knew that I had to go in certain situations and adapt to that environment. And at the same time, be comfortable being myself without feeling like I'm, you know, um, compromising myself or my integrity. And yeah. so I always wanted you to be comfortable in your skin as well as your sisters to be able to accept you however big, tall, however short, however fat, skinny, whatever it is, this is who I am, this is me, and love that. And what I found in doing that, when you love yourself and you look at yourself and you're proud of who you are and, and where you are, I see that people gravitate to you and they accept you and they love you. Um, I've given a quick example of, you know, me, I have skinny legs, you know, and growing up, it's out here in the desert, it was always hot. so. I was accustomed to wearing shorts and, you know, what people said or thought meant nothing to me. <laughs> I could tell you a friend of mine, my roommate, when I got to uh, Northridge, he said, man, you inspired me to wear shorts. I'm like, well, what? <laughs> he said, man, I looked at your legs and I said, if he can wear shorts, I can wear shorts. <laughs> and I was like, look, man, it's just too hot to be out here trying to figure out what people think. You know, this is what it is, this is how I'm rolling. So I've always been fairly comfortable with who I am and you know, functioning in that realm. Yeah, well I think that's something you definitely passed down to us and we got it from all of our family members, but <laughs> I think you did a good job of, you know, giving us that balance and allowing us to be who, are, who we are, but also teaching us to function in the society we live in. So I guess well, thank good. you for that. <laughs> well, thank you for listening and, uh, <laughs> and carry it out. And one other thing I wanna say to you, as you begin to approach your career and aspire to do great things, always, set your price, meaning what is it that I gonna do and what is it that, no, we, we not even compromised it. There's always gotta be that price because the higher you go, um, in many instances, you may be approached to compromise your integrity and who you are and you never wanna do that. When you lay down at night, you wanna be able to lay down and feel that and know that I made the best decisions without compromising who I am and I can live with that. And so um, that's one thing I want you guys, you in particular, as well as your sisters, to know that you don't do anything for money to the point of where you compromise who you are, the fame and all that. That stuff will come if you do the right thing. If you look at Dave Chappelle and the decision he made to say, you know what, the price got too high for me and I'm not willing to pay that. You know, he took a hit, but when you look at him, he came back around and you know, he's doing just as well, if not better now than when he uh, decided to leave. So I just want you to always keep that in mind that I have a price and I have a certain boundary that I won't pass because I have to live with myself and the people coming after me and the, and the integrity that I have to um, uh, demonstrate and live by, you know, is too important. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Well, with that being said, I think that's gonna wrap up another episode of No Strangers to the Game. Uh, we appreciate all our listeners for tuning in and make sure you tune in next time. All right. Peace. All right. That'll wrap up today's episode. 
Glad we could take a moment to put you up on game. We post a new podcast every Sunday morning. Now you know. Peace.